Thank you, Linda. Um, every year at this time, we highlight a, a lot of ministries of New Heights Church for you all. And we also share, and I have the privilege of doing that this morning, our annual church budget. Uh, you were given a bulletin with a bunch of handouts when you came in, and there's financial information on one side of the little half page. You can take a look at that this morning or later. And if you have questions about our finances, I'm the guy you need to talk to. So come see me after the service, or you can call the church office. Or I think my email and contact information are on the website. You can contact me or catch me at church. So a lot this morning, we do this. We have this ministry fair with these tables scattered around the room. And by the way, inside your, on the front of your bulletin is a map telling you what tables, what ministry tables are where in the room. If you can read a map, you can read that and go to one of the ministry tables after the service and check it out. Why are we doing all this? Uh, why am I up here spending five minutes telling you about this? And Lee will do the same thing next week because three reasons. Number one, to offer you an opportunity to get involved with some of these ministries uh, maybe that you don't know about or you've never gotten involved before, either as a volunteer or simply as a participant. Secondly, just to make all of us aware and remind us of the many ways that New Heights is involved in ministering, not only to its members, we do minister to our members, all of you all, as well as ministering to the people of Fayetteville in the Northwest Arkansas community and the university community. Linda's already commented on that and to the world. More on that, a global Sunday coming up in a few weeks. Thirdly, to let you know where the money that you give goes when you give to New Heights Church. It goes to a lot of places, as you can see. So for the next two Sundays, these tables will be scattered around the room. I encourage you to linger after the service and go visit some of the ministry tables. Uh, comments on the finances. Our new fiscal year began July 1st. And as you can see, our annual budget is $3.4 million, which is up only just a little bit from last year's budget. The pie chart, again, gives you a visual of where the money goes. The staff salaries have been folded back into the different categories according to where each staff member works. Uh, again, if you have money questions, find me. New Heights is involved, as you already know, in a lot of ministries designed to share God's gospel in a number of ways. His values and his goodness, as I've already stated, with people locally and to use a Jesus term literally to the ends of the earth. We've provided you, again, a separate sheet. There's 29 ministries of New Heights highlighted. There are a few more that may have got left off, but that's enough to get started with taking a look at. Uh, there's also the famous or infamous circle chart which keeps me sane at least, on the back of the financial insert that provides you even more information about New Heights. Now, Lee will share some next week about several ministries of those 29, not all 29. We don't have time to do that. But right now, I'm going to spotlight two. And I've picked two very, what I would call, non-traditional ministries of New Heights Church just as a sample of our efforts to try to reach the community of Fayetteville in Northwest Arkansas in two ways, spiritually first and then tangibly, in tangible ways. Number one, I think we've got pictures of the Fayetteville prayer room when we pull up. That's our, by the way, our brand new sign, which is lit up at night, yeah, and our recently remodeled prayer room. 
The program started in 2011. It is fully funded by New Heights Church and it's part of our budget. We don't put our name or our brand on it. It's for the community. It's open six days a week to the public. And on Sundays, a Marshall East Church meets there. Various groups, church groups and ministry groups sponsor worship and prayer meetings there throughout the week regularly. Dennis has documented over 200 churches that are represented using the prayer room, people from at least 200 churches using the prayer room. It's very much what I like to call a spiritual hotspot in Fayetteville. There are lots of those. We're interested in creating spiritual hotspots around town. Worship and prayer and ministry to people that come in there through our gatekeepers goes on daily. Dennis Peterson, I've already mentioned, is our full-time staff person that's in charge of that ministry, but he's the only person we have on staff that we pay to manage the prayer room. It is run by volunteers like you all, gatekeepers. And if you're interested in being a gatekeeper or in the prayer room, see Dennis at one of the ministry tables after the service. Second non-traditional ministry I want to highlight. Most of you are aware of this. That's a construction site. Right now, it doesn't look like a lot, but it reflects the efforts of hundreds of people investing thousands of hours to make something happen. That's the beginnings of Cobblestone Farm Community, which is under construction. When it's completed early next spring, it will provide very affordable, I'm talking about very affordable rental housing for nearly 300 people. There'll be 90 units of affordable housing and 10 units of market housing. The farm behind it, I think we've got pictures, let's pull up the farm, there's one, we've got a couple of more, let's social, yeah, there's some sheep, I think we got some pigs too. Uh, the farm, we're not kosher, the farm is already producing thousands of pounds of vegetables and meat yearly, this has been going on for nearly a decade there. Uh, Kelton Hayes is doing an incredible job with that. The majority of it, the vast majority of it, is donated to charities such as the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank to help alleviate hunger and food insecurity in Northwest Arkansas. All of this takes place on land owned by the church that we donate the use of free. Uh, the projects are a result of the collaboration of several nonprofits, most of them faith-based, and the culmination of thousands of hours of work, as I already stated, over several years. Our investment, your investment as a church, is the free use of the land and a whole bunch of my time and some of our other staff members' time as well. Why do we do all these things? Why a prayer room? Why an affordable housing project? It's a testimony to the goodness of our God, to our community. It's just one of the ways that we can, and we've got other expressions of God's tangible love to people, but this is one unique way we can express God's tangible love. So on the screen now, let's pull up the giving slide. Our, you see this every week, nothing new about that, are the ways that you can give to support your church. So join me now as I lead us in our giving prayer that we do every week. Lord Jesus, you gave your very life for us. We want to be generous like you. Form us into a generous people. Free us from fear, worry, and selfishness. We trust you with our provision, and we give with joyful hearts, knowing that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also.
Amen. transition to, to John. I'm going to start this morning with the last recorded words of the last Old Testament prophet. Most of you that know your Bible know that's Malachi. I invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Literally the last two verses of the Old Testament. And here's what Malachi says, kind of his parting shot. And after this, there's 400 what's called silent years where the Jews don't have really a, a prophet until we get to today's text, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. So this is Malachi's last words. See, I will send the prophet Elijah speaking for God, someone that will come in the power and spirit of the Old Testament prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He's talking about judgment day, which hasn't come yet, but I believe is coming soon when the Lord returns. What will he do? Well, he's going to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I'll come and I'll strike your land, speaking to the Jews with total destruction. So this prophet that foretold by Malachi is going to have a ministry of repentance. That's just one example of the repentance he's seeking. He's seeking to conform Jewish behavior in the first century back to what I like to call the ethos of heaven or the ethos of God. And so there's other places in the Old Testament where this prophet is described as one who will preach in the wilderness and prepare the way for the Lord's coming. We'll look at some of those verses in just a minute. Again, God does not speak with authority to these Jews for, for about 400 years. So let's jump forward to that point in time in the first century. And we're going to start before I get to John chapter 1. It's all about John the Baptist this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you that. Let's investigate the birth of this last Old Testament prophet, so to speak, the cousin of Jesus Christ, John, who will later in his adult years become known is John the Baptist. So here's the way the story starts. And by the way, get ready. I'm probably going to read more scripture than I've ever read when I stood up here this morning, Old Testament and New Testament. And I'm going to tell you right now why I'm doing that for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons I'm doing that is most of you know this book's under attack. This book is true. It's true. And it contains great eternal truths. And we're going to see that John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle that wrote the gospel, says he wrote it to try to prove to you. He's talking like a lawyer, like an advocate, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wants you to believe. He says that 
98 times in his little gospel, 98 times he uses the word believe or put your faith in. 54 times it's followed by either life or eternal life. Believe and live, believe and live. And John's trying to make his case. In fact, the opening verses this morning will be like a courtroom scene. So I'm unashamedly this morning trying to advocate for all the Old Testament prophecies that are going to be fulfilled in the first century and some of which haven't been fulfilled yet and the veracity and the truthfulness of this book, Old and New Testament. So that's one of the reasons I'm starting all the way back with the birth of John the Baptist. The story begins. A little over 2,000 years ago, an old Jewish priest by the name of Zechariah went into the temple in Jerusalem to burn incense to the Lord. An angel appeared to him and spoke audibly to him, not an average day in the temple. So I want to pick out the story with the angel speaking to this old man in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. Now he's old, his wife has never had any children, she's past the age of bearing children, and here's what the angel says. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Zechariah sees him. He's startled. Obviously, you would be too. Gripped with fear. The angel speaks. Don't be afraid. A very common thing for angels to say when they show up. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. He must have been praying for a child. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many, not all, but many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he's never to take wine or other fermented drink. That's what's called a Nazarite vow. I don't have time to go into that this morning. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to see that phrase over and over and over again this morning. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he's born in the womb. And he'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll restore them through what? Through a ministry of repentance, repentance of sin. And he will go on before the Lord. He's a forerunner of the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Wow, where do we hear those words? I just read them to you, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Why? He's quoting the Malachi passage. The angel is. He's validating the Old Testament prophecy to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient in general to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord or for the Lord's coming. He's paving the road for the Messiah. So Zechariah responds. Possibly, oh, I might respond. Uh, how can I be sure of this? Not a good thing to say. I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. The angel gets hacked off, if angel can get hacked off. He said, I'm Gabriel, duh. I stand in the presence of God. That's where this came from, the presence of God. I've been sent to speak this to you and tell you this is incredibly good news. And now you're going to be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true just as I've stated in their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people are waiting outside for the old priest to come out. I don't know what I exactly understand all the Jewish ways they worship back then. They expect him to come out and give him some word or something. He comes out and he can't talk. So they know he's seen a vision. 
He keeps making signs to them. Verse 23, when this time of service in the temple was completed, and get time to go into this in detail, but the priests scattered around Judea were like kind of like the National Guard. And they served on duty for a little period of time, days, weeks, or months at the temple. And this was his time to be at the temple. He goes back home to his ordinary job. He's very bivocational. After this, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant, miracle, and for five months remains in seclusion. And let's pick up the story now with the birth of John the Baptist. I'm going to skip forward to Luke 1, 67 through 80, and God's going to loosen his tongue, and John is going to be born. And this time, Zechariah will be doing the prophesying and speaking for God, not an angel. God is going to speak through this old man. Here's the first words that Zechariah speaks, Luke 1, 67 through 80. His father, meaning John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's that phrase again, and he starts to prophesy. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. First response, worship. Always a good response. But though he's come to his people and redeemed them, he's talking about buying people back, and he's going to prophesy. Most of this prophecy is not about his son. Some of it is. Most of it's about his son's cousin, Jesus, the Messiah. Because he has come to his people and he's going to redeem them. He's going to buy them back from their slave master, Satan and his demons and the power of death. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, clearly a reference to the Messiah. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, we're going to go back and forth between those holy prophets this morning in the first century and the 21st century. Salvation from our enemies. He thinks the enemies are Rome. Who's our enemy? Satan and his demons. Deliverance from him and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors. He's talking about the Jews and to remember his holy covenant. What covenant? The covenant that God made centuries before with Abraham. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. You ever get afraid of anything? I do. Been afraid of all kinds of things in the past week that might happen family, friends, and, and, and I'm not a very fearful person, but fear sometimes consumes us and paralyzes us. And one of the big fears for a lot of people, this isn't one of mine, but it is a lot of folks, is fear of death. God sent Jesus to rescue us from a spirit of fear, particularly a spirit of fear of death. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, my child, now he's talking about John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God. Remember, Jesus had been referred to by John as a light, the light that came down from heaven. And here's Zechariah saying the same thing, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Jesus, the light of the world, is coming to light up that first century Jewish world and to light up your world if you embrace him. To shine on those living in darkness. They lived in darkness. We live in darkness apart from God. In the shadows of death, there, there's the main object of their fear and ours. To guide our feet into the path of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. If we could pull up a picture now of that Judean wilderness, and with all that in mind, that's where John did his ministry in the desert, in the wilderness of Judea. And with all that in mind now, let's get to the main text, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. John the apostle, again, think of a courtroom. But in this courtroom, you're the judge. You get to decide. John's trying to make his case. Let's pull up John 20, 31, just for fun. It's the end of the book, more or less. And I think Kevin referenced this a couple of weeks ago. Again, what does John say? I wrote this whole gospel. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Over and over and over, he's saying this. Now go back to John 1.19. This was John's testimony. So the first witness that John the apostle calls to the stand to make his case is John the Baptist. Here's John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask John the Baptist who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I'm not the Messiah. I know you're out here, at the, and I'm just another one of those guys claiming to be the Messiah, but I'm not. And then they said, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? They know all those Old Testament prophets. Prophecies like Malachi 4, 5, and 6, and some others we're going to look at. Now, he's messing with them at this point. He doesn't want to be branded yet with that label. He knows his daddy's prophecy. He knows he's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In fact, he dresses like him. He's got on this weird-looking garb of animal skins. He's eating bugs, locusts, and wild honey and living out in the desert. He's a wild-eyed prophet just like Elijah was. He knows he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. He knows he's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. But he won't be branded with that title just yet by these guys. So he says, literally, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Don't have time to go into that this morning. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Jews, most of them thought the prophet was the Messiah. Probably that's what it was a reference to. Moses talked about the prophet that was to come. He said, no, I'm not him either. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. So they said, well, who are you then? Give us an answer to take back to all those Jewish leadership that sent her out here in this God-forsaken desert to confront you. What do you say about yourself? So John replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet. He's going to quote Isaiah 40, verse 3. He said, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight way for the Lord. So the Pharisees questioned him again. Well, wait a minute. You're baptizing people. You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. And you're not the prophet. John changes him. He diverts him. He said, yeah, I'm baptizing with water. But among you right now stands one you don't know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And all this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. By the time the Gospel of John was written, let's pull up that map. By the time the Gospel of John was written, John knew the 
other three, what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had been passed around among all the churches in Southern Europe and in near Asia and in North Africa. He knew he was the last one to write of the account of the life of Jesus Christ. And he knew there were stories in there about Bethany, a place they all knew that was near Jerusalem, who lived in Bethany in the stories, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he says, I'm going to make a distinction about where John was baptizing because he wasn't baptizing at that Bethany. He was baptizing at that other Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, just outside the Judean wilderness. Why am I telling you all this? I don't know. It's interesting. And I thought you'd like it. Okay. But uh, anyway, that's where he's baptizing. Lots of people have gone looking for that other Bethany. They've never found exactly where he was, but it really doesn't matter. But he wasn't in the Bethany over by Jerusalem. That was the point. And so let's finish out reading. But uh, Isaiah 42.1, let's pull that one up first. Here's another prophecy of Isaiah from the Old Testament about Jesus. Here is my servant who might poll, my chosen one. Jesus is referred to as the chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. We're going to see that happen today in the form of a dove. And he will bring justice to the nations. This stuff was written six to seven hundred years before it's now coming to fruition in first century Palestine. Know some of these prophecies. So what's John going to do? He's going to quote some of these Old Testament prophecies and paraphrase them. Verse 29 of John chapter 1. Let's pick it up there again. The next day... This the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he says to his disciples, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's come into the world to offer himself up as the atoning sin sacrifice in fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies for God to appease his own sense of justice. He wrote himself into the story as the blood sacrifice, as an incredible demonstration of his love for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and to those first century stubborn Jews and for 21st century Americans. That's who's coming, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You gotta believe to obtain your sins being taken away. He says that in lots of other places. This is the one he tells his boys, I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Who is Jesus? He describes himself in John seven times as the great I am. Paul describes him as the one who is the creation agent, who was back there with the Holy Spirit and God the Father hovering over the waters. All things were created by him, for him, and through him. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's saying that Jesus he existed in eternity past. I myself didn't know him. Wait a minute, he was your cousin. Well, they didn't live in the same town, okay? And he knew the prophecies about him, but what he's really saying is, I didn't really know that snotty-nosed carpenter kid was God. That's what he's saying. But the reason I come baptizing well the water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And here's John's testimony again. John the Apostle is going to sum it up. John the Baptist is going to say, I 
saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water, who was that? God. God told me, the man upon whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's all over this. God the Father, God the Son, the Trinity's all in here. And God the Spirit, you can't get around the Trinity. And I have seen, and I testify again, courtroom scene, John the Apostle, presenting evidence of the deity of Christ, presenting Old Testament evidence, presenting real life evidence that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. And I testify that he's what? God's chosen one, going back to that other Isaiah passage. Wow, that's a lot I know I've dumped on you. But I want to refer, and this is not the main part of the talk, but I want to comment on this whole baptizing the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit thing. And I don't have time to develop it fully. I wish I did. I just want to give you a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 first, before we get to the main point of the text, which is the Lamb of God. We're all baptized, Paul tells us, with one spirit. So it's to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, if you know Jesus, you begin one spirit to drink of. You have the Holy Spirit. It's time that some of you maybe started believing that and embracing that truth. Is there anywhere else in Scripture that says that? Yeah, Romans 8, 9 says it in another way. Paul says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit, the Spirit's referred to as here in this verse as the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. If you don't have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So don't let anyone tell you because they have some special gift that maybe you don't have, you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you've got Jesus and you're embracing, you've got the Holy Spirit. Now there's an important theological distinction made all throughout the New Testament between being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you want to check out a passage about that, go to Acts 4, 29 through 31, but I don't have time to do it this morning. I want to go to the most important part of the talk, the Lamb of God. And I want to go back into the Old Testament again. I know I'm overwhelming with Scripture and Scripture stories this morning, but I intend to. Genesis is 22, 1 through 14. Genesis is rocking along rapidly. We're covering epics of time. And we get to chapter 22, and everything slows down dramatically. And all of a sudden, we drop into this scene on a mountain. We start to feel. We start to feel what Abraham's feeling. His only legitimate son, he's been asked by God to sacrifice him. Now, that doesn't make any sense, but God, God clearly forbids child sacrifice. What on earth is this all about? Why would God do this? Pretty clear one of the reasons. He wants you and I to feel the un and understand just a little bit what he's going to go through someday when he sees his son hanging on a cross sacrifice for you and I. 
So we can put ourselves in the place of Abraham. It's hard for us to put ourselves in the place of God. So feel what an old man is feeling as he's trying to be obedient to this God that he has encountered to take his son up on the mountain to sacrifice him. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, one you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, and I'll show you. Early the next morning, he gets up, he loads his donkey, he heads out, takes his son, he cuts enough wood for the offering, and he sets out the place God told him to go. On the third day, he gets there, he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey, I'm in verse 4, I'm moving fast and paraphrasing, well, I and the boy go over there, we'll worship, and we'll come back to you. By the way, that's a faith statement. God's already told him that Isaac is a child of promise, and all the nations are going to be blessed through this boy and through his descendants. So he believes he'll raise him from the dead if he sacrifices him. Verse 6, Abraham takes the wood, places it on his son. His son carries it, and he himself carries a fire to start this with some coals and a knife. And the two of them go to the other side of the mountain, and Isaac speaks up to his father, and he's probably a young adult at this late teens or early 20s, and he says, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replies, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Four, no, excuse me, about 1,200 or 1,400 years later, John the Baptist is going to answer that question. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is prophetic stuff, prophetic allegory. God is showing us what's going to happen on a hill outside of Jerusalem someday, but he's going through with it. And Abraham speaks prophetically. God himself will provide the Lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them go on together. They reach the place. He builds the fire, he starts to strike his son. An angel stopped him. He says that there's a sacrifice, a ram over in the bushes. Go get him and offer him as a sacrifice. Skip down to verse 14. It says, so Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide, or the Lord will provide the sacrifice. That was written about 12 to 1400 years before John the Baptist sees his cousin come in and calls him the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. What's another Old Testament prophecy about the Lamb of God or a foreshadowing of the sacrifice? You know this story. It's ancient Egypt. One night after 10 plagues, and God's had enough. And he says he intends to bring judgment, not, so to speak, on the Egyptians, but on the demons the gods the Egyptians are worshiping. And he sends an angel to kill the firstborn throughout Egypt, unless what? Unless the angel sees the blood of a lamb over the doorpost of the homes. And before this all happens, Moses said, I'm going to read a few verses of Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel, on the tenth day of each month, this month, each man is to take a lamb, one for each household, skip down to verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then take some of the blood and put it the same night. Eat the lamb and put it over the doorpost of your house on that night, verse 12. I'll pass through Egypt. And I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment 
on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no destructive plague or judgment will touch you when I bring judgment on Egypt. One more passage of scripture pointing to the Lamb of God. It's Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 7. Isaiah speaking prophetically about a suffering servant, a Messiah, who's going to offer himself up as a sin sacrifice. Verse 5, he says this about him. He's going to be pierced for your transgressions, Jim. He's going to be crushed for your rebellion, for your iniquities, for your sin nature, for your bad choices. The punishment that brought us peace that reconciles me to you, I'm going to put on him. You deserve it, but I'm going to put it on him. And by his wounds, you're going to receive healing. Verse 7, this suffering servant, this lamb of God, he's going to be oppressed and afflicted, yet he won't open his mouth. He'll be led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shears is silent. He will not open his mouth. Now, all that is the prophetic backdrop shared by prophets from long ago about what's happening by the Jordan River as Jesus was baptized, as John is retelling it and giving testimony about it. The Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. The dove. This is just a fun little ditty, and I couldn't pass it up. I'm sorry. If you're not a supernaturalist, this is probably going to blow your mind this morning, okay? But just blame it on me. But the dove, John needed a sign, didn't he? He needed a sign from God to identify and validate who the Messiah was. It, sometimes God gives us a sign, not always, supernaturally, to validate decisions we need to make if we're prayerfully seeking his guidance and trying to stay in step with the Spirit as we're told to in Galatians 5. It could be something as simple as a word from a friend or even a stranger that validates or tells you which way to go or a decision you need to make. It can be just godly wisdom from a mentor. It could be something as strange as a vision. Or God can just speak to you in your spirit, as he often does. The most common way he speaks an impression in your spirit. Or it could come through a specific Bible passage where the words just leap off the page and come alive in your mind and your heart. Or he can speak to you through nature, but he still speaks. He still speaks. But when he does, he doesn't ever contradict anything he's already spoken in his word. There's a lot of biblical symbols for the Holy Spirit. Fire at Pentecost, oil, water, in this case today, a dove. Christians have used these symbols for centuries. Well, Andrew and Mandy are trying to use their land south of town where they live as a spiritual retreat center. Lots of folks from New Heights have already had retreats there. Some of you have been to retreats there. I have. Uh, we've had a lot of meetings in his shop building. Worship and uh, the Holy Spirit showed up in a lot of those meetings and manifested himself in a lot of wonderful ways. Uh, but they've been asking God, though, for several months to give them some sign or confirmation this isn't just some wild hair scheme of theirs. They didn't want to no, God wanted them to develop their land as a spiritual retreat center. So, so they asked for a sign. And sometimes God answers in unique ways. So Andrew, tell us 
Thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, so in 2020, the Lord uh, opened the door for us to buy 40 acres south of Fayetteville uh, with a vision to start a retreat, some sort of retreat center. And um, uh, the basic vision in it was to host his presence and his people. That was the specific word that we felt like was from him. And over the last few years, we've taken many small steps in t- towards that end. Um, and uh, we still, you know, we're at times, you know, we're super confident that this was from the Lord and we're doing the right things. And in other times, totally questioning it all. Um, and what we don't want to do is just do our own thing um, and our own idea. If it was from him, we wanted it to be birthed by him. And so one way that, that we try to do that is looking for confirmation in lots of ways, through scripture, through people, through friends. And we're really open to any way. God can speak any way he wants to at any time. And nature is one of them. And one day we were having a particularly challenging week. Um, uh, we had just had our fourth child and our one-year-old had RSV at the same time. And we had just some relational conflict in our life, normal life stuff. Um, but I kind of got to the point of just kind of questioning it all and just being like, is this just, this doesn't, I don't know. And I was on the way home from work uh, one day that week. And Mandy said that uh, just a strange thing had happened at home. And they were doing homeschool inside. And they kept seeing this white flash in front of the windows, in the windows in front of the house. And so Case, our seven-year-old, she sent Case out to check it out. And so he went to check it out. And there was a white dove that had, had shown up in front of our house and was, had landed in the tree and then was on the ground. And our seven-year-old, he went, he got just a couple feet from it. It let him get like two feet from it. And he came back and told Mandy about it. And she called me and we were just talking about it on the way home. And I got home and I took this video and was just really, I mean, it's really struck by its just stark appearance. And just, I, I've, I've grown up in this area and in the woods and I've never seen anything like it. And so it was, I don't know, it was just a unique thing that we just kind of were like, okay, what is this? And um, the next day it came back. Um, same time, same way, it would show up and fly around our house and the main part of the property. And just, you know, not wanting to jump to any conclusions too quick, where I start doing some research and I can't find anything about white doves in the wild, really anywhere outside of really rare albino doves that don't last long because they stand out. And um, so we started to, to wonder if this was like something from the Lord, if he was confirming something. And our seven-year-old, when he had come in the first time and my wife was asking him about it, um, she was like, well, what do you think that it's about? And he said, well, the Holy Spirit came to Jesus in the form of the dove um, whenever John baptized Jesus. He said, I think it's from God. And, um, and so we're, okay, is this like continue to confirm this Lord? And we were started to share it with our community. And, and we had a friend that was like, well, you, uh, Noah also released a dove. And it came back with a branch that was a sign of, of new dry land. And um, for us, it was, you know, we're looking for confirmation that this is from the Lord. And for whatever reason, there's this white dove flying around our property. And as we prayed and continued, we just felt like it was, it was an encouragement from God that he's with us, that his presence is with us. And, um, and as we move forward, we are continuing. Actually, also the week before, the day before we we do a nature school co-op, um, a homeschool co-op at our house on Mondays. And the night before 
we started our co-op this fall, uh, just a couple weeks ago. We were setting up in the shop, and the dove flew into the shop and has taken up residence in the shop. It now sleeps in the shop every single night. And if you go into our shop right now, the floor is just covered with dove feathers. There's just white dove feathers all over the shop. And I have no practical application to why, um, but we do believe that God speaks in both conventional and unconventional ways. And many times I believe that he is speaking to us and we're not seeing it or we're um, rationalizing it away. And I'm not saying to go look for butterflies and doves everywhere you go. But I do think that many times God does show up in those ways, and I think you see that in Scripture. And so we've taken it as confirmation from him, and we'll continue to ask for confirmation on right steps as we move forward, but we're thankful to have the dove in the season. And it, it's still, to this day, so that was May 25th, and to this day, it comes back every single day. And so we're, we're thankful and Amen. moving forward. So. Amen. Give me my hand. That was just fun. A few applications from this text. Number one, and most importantly, here's what it means to believe and live, according to John. Embrace Jesus as your atoning sin sacrifice, if you've not already. The one who died, not just to reconcile the world, but to you, to God. They testify that he's your savior by being baptized. As he modeled, he humbled himself to do. He commanded you to do in identification with him. That's number one. Number two, if you really know Jesus, you have access daily to his Holy Spirit. Get on your knees every morning, I do, and pray for him to fill you that day with his Holy Spirit and lead, guide, and empower you and believe he'll do it and then look for him to lead you throughout the day. Number three, proclaim to the world through your words and the way you live your life, the validity of the gospel and the Jesus way of life. If you want a resource to help you with discipleship, we've got lots of them scattered around this room. I'll shamelessly plug one that I participated in writing. Uh, we got a newly published discipleship workbook over there on the equip table. It's $10. If you have it, throw it in there. If you don't, you can pay later. And that's one way that you, you can begin to move closer to God and his ethos. Number four, worship. Worship the Lamb of God daily, not just here at church, by intentionally expressing your affection for him back to him. And again, by conforming your life to his pattern for living. Let's jump forward in time now. Out of the 1200 BC, out of the first century, out of the 21st century, and jump forward to some point in the future. Same writer, his name's John. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he has this incredible vision that he records called the book of Revelation. And here's an excerpt of what he sees. Revelation 5, 11 through 13. John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive 
power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under this earth and on the sea. And all of them were saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We've got two baptisms to share with you this morning. My friend JR is gonna be baptizing his son in just a minute, and I'm gonna baptize a member of the congregation. But if you want to be baptized this morning in obedience to what Jesus modeled, what John the Baptist did, and what he commanded us to do, it's okay to go home wet and obedient. Just come see me and we'll take care of it after these two baptisms. The prayer teams will come up after this. We'll have communion and ministry time. But right now, two baptisms to share with you.